One thing that I wanted to start with is uh, I, I was telling Joe uh, before you joined, and um, just like what, like what, uh, maybe like wor works of art have you guys engaged in over the last maybe couple of weeks? Any observations? Anything that that's maybe relevant for this conversation? Not me. Uh, yesterday I watched On Her Majesty's Secret Service, the James Bond movie with George Lazenby. So mm -hmm. I've never seen it fully before, but not. not I'm guessing it's not high art. <laughs> no, but it's actually a, a lot better movie than James Bond's fans slag it as it's uh -huh. just because it was the first one without Sean Connery. But okay, yeah. Um, uh, I I recently saw. Well, I, in the last couple of weeks, I saw that movie a uh, uh, tape, uh, Richard uh, Linklater. Um, so I, I saw it for a first time, maybe like 10, 15 years ago when I was rewatching it now, you know, I just get the sense that, you know, whenever we talk about the arts, um, one idea that just keeps coming back to me is, you know, great art or like good art or anything that's worthwhile. It's just very much additive, right? Like in a purely kind of, you know, almost mathematical sense, like, uh, I'm not sure if any of you saw this, but is it, the, the, the film is basically, uh, two guys, they meet up uh, uh, like 10 years after graduating high school. Uh, they haven't seen each other in a while. Um, and uh, they, you know, like they start essentially confronting each other about various things. And, you know, it, it, it so easily could turn into like, oh, you know, uh, let's turn this into a movie about a guy confronting another guy about a rape, you know, 10 years ago. And, you know, the, the kind of like, you know, moral strength of that. But what it does is like everybody that has a complaint in the film, right? Everybody that has some kind of accusation to make as characters get introduced and new situations are introduced, you see that, you know, all these complaints are as easily uh, applicable to, to anyone else, right? So you keep getting layer upon layer upon layer, you know, maybe like every 15 or so minutes, you get this kind of structural shift, right? So, you know, uh, I think an easy way of viewing, you know, great art versus mediocre art versus like anything in between is, how much are you really adding, right? Like, what are the layers really doing? Because there is something tangibly going on there in an additive sense, right? That that lesser art simply is not going to have. Yeah, and I'm not familiar with with this film that you just mentioned. So this is this is freshly out, and in the past couple of weeks, basically. Oh I'll no, no. This, this this is this is an old film from like 2002, I believe. Oh, this is old. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, I just haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, yeah, but th that, that was my observation. Just, just a sense that whenever you look at something that's worthwhile, um, you're just adding more, right? Like it, it's always like there, there's more of something, right? The universe in some way changes by this addition. It's not, it's not an addition that eventually just gets subsumed by something else and disappears. And it's not an, an addition in the sense of like, you know, war might be like, well, you know, wars in addition to something, but there's also so much more subtraction involved, right? And the things that you're subtract, sub subtracting by way of good art, you know, these are subtractions that the world sort of doesn't need to begin with, right? So um, anyway, that was just my uh, observation there. If anyone else has anything else to say, if not, we could like get into uh, the, the, the book. Well, I, did, I, I did see a, a Mike Lee film, Naked, which uh, is... It was his first major, or maybe his second major film. Jessica had seen it, 
It reminded me of uh, Martin Scorsese's After Hours. It, it was it was a mm. good film. It, I wouldn't say it was a great film, but it was, it was good. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I actually recently went to see Tenet, the latest Christopher Nolan film, and then shortly thereafter rewatched Memento. And it's pretty striking how much better Memento is than Tenet uh, in terms of dealing with uh, themes of time and memory. And, uh, you know, Nolan has such big budgets anymore for his films. Tenet is, is probably one of the most stunning films I've ever seen in terms of tricks and, and cinematic techniques uh, that, that money can buy. But in terms of the story and what actually takes place, uh, Memento is so much better, plus Guy Pierce's performance in that mm-hmm. is is leaps and bounds better, I think, than anyone uh, was in Tenet. So, uh, and also recently did another side-by-side of rewatching The Tree of Life from Malick and Thin Red Line from Malick. And again, just the juxtaposition of, um, you know, the way that the narrative moves better in Thin Red Line, Tree of Life, it's like so visually stunning, but that whole uh, fugue sequence uh, that's, you know, just the the rip off of 2001 in a lot of ways and goes on forever and it's it's beautiful but you're ready for it to be done because you get the point about a minute in and it goes on for whatever like 15 minutes um and there's just other things that he that he misses there that were better in thin red line by a stretch even though the the two stories you know ostensibly war is framing both of them a little bit but um yeah it's it's been interesting to do those side by sides so yeah, it's it's um yeah it's interesting how uh, uh now let's say if you have these like big budgets like the fact that you're given so many tools to work with, um you had this I- ironic thing happening where very little of, little of it is actually used right you know what I mean mm-hmm. like so you, you essentially get a big budget but the you know the ends just aren't there right um and and you know i'm not sure if this is a case of like artists uh freezing up or you know getting too old it, it, it could be anything but i i get the sense that the more tools that you have like this is true in the arts this is also true generally in life um uh, there is such a thing thing as like a as an excess right of 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 tools in that way well that's Scorsese yeah. is, is the the king of that a uh, few months ago i borrowed my uh mother-in-law's netflix to watch the irishman and it's a totally pointless movie it's three and a half hours long the the effects used to supposedly de-age de niro and pacino uh, were ridiculously bad i mean mm-hmm. it's, it's it and he hasn't done anything of any value since the 20th century really uh well i wouldn't say not of any value but of any great value um and it's like if I were if I were a pal of Scorsese, I'd say what you need to do is say I'm going to go real cheap. Go back to, to and say I'm not going to do any movie for three or four or five movies. The next ones I do, I'm going to only have five million dollars, which is a lot of money to mm-hmm. us folks. But to him, for a movie, say limit yourself. Make raw films. Mm-hmm. Get back there because you can't have an 80 year old man or 78 whatever the hell he is. Uh, and just, you're just going to indulge yourself. It, it's like watching the last few films of Fellini or Bergman. Um, uh, Scorsese is uh, just wastes so much money on, on this bullshit. And the story itself is just ridiculously bad. And uh, Woody Allen, at least his films are still small, but they're p- pretty much pointless too. So, Have you guys uh, seen any Woody Allen over the last few years? I, I, I haven't uh, really um, 
you know, with the exception of like uh, a couple years ago, I saw uh, Wonder Wheel, which uh, had some decent uh, uh, parts. So it, it's probably actually one of the better kind of like really like really like late late films. Um, but have you guys like kept up with Woody Allen at all or? No, I mean, the, the last one I saw was the Kate Blanchett one where she won an Oscar. What was that? Oh, Blue Jasmine. Jasmine, yeah, 2013. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I have uh, nothing else uh, with that. You guys want to get into Dan's book, The Custodian's Bitch? Let's do it. Um, I mean, if you guys have uh, uh, nothing in way of introduction, you know, I just want uh, viewers to get a sense of uh, the style of the book. Um, you know, anything like longer and expository, like it's worth it to uh, uh, go over it, um, uh, to, to, uh, some degree so that, you know, people know what they're getting into, um, and to kind of like frame the rest of the conversation. So just very briefly, uh, the custodian's, uh, bitch is, uh, about a, a man who's working, um, in a, a custodial job at a school. He has uh, lots of observations about the teachers, about the custodians that he works with. He himself is a, a great writer. It's roughly based on Dan Schneider's actual experiences working for a school. Um, and throughout, I mean, like the, this, this, you know, this uh, a phrase, the custodian's bitch, it, it gets played with in various ways. You have, for example, uh, you know, the, uh, the fact that all these custodians there, right? Everybody in the job, they're always bitching about something. And the, 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 the reason why the word bitch is appropriate is, you know, these are complaints that really go nowhere, right? It's usually complaining into a void. And it would be one thing if like these complaints were married to some sort of like action or some kind of like, you know, uh, uh, observations. But mo most of the people in the book, they don't really offer too much personal insight, right? Except for uh, the narrator, Ben, who just kind of, you know, play off of and make observations of his own. So this is the way that the, begin the book starts with the prologue. I cannot recall a single day in my life when pain was not a component, palpable in mind, acting as a guide of sorts through the commons of each day, a teacher of things under the lip of recognition, and even consciousness, almost as if a lover and companion, if not an executor or executioner. It has been omnipresent. Of course, when I speak of pain, I did not mean merely the existential spiritual bullshit sort, like Feldman does, my neighbor who's always complaining of this or that. No, I mean the real pain that comes from days and weeks and months and years and decades of hard physical labor, where the body breaks down in small bits, a broken bone here, a hernia there, a wince to the side, needs to stretch to the middle. It has always angered me that, especially in the industrialized and developed world, so little homage is given to those of us who lift that box and heave that bale. Far fewer people can do hard physical labor than push papers across a desk and bang away at a desktop computer's keyboard. In fact, I recall a teacher I once worked with telling me that he admired the work that I did, physical labor as a custodian, because he knew that he could not do it, even physically. Yet whenever one hears of underpaid professions, teachers are almost always at the top of that list. The working class, the working poor are almost always ignored. Yet teachers are as disposable as any physical laborer. I know, I have seen it. This, in fact, puts me in mind to put you and others straight about certain things, the biases against the working class that so many people who might peruse these musings may hold. Let me just uh, one thing. 
uh, the title of the book is a play on the, the early 20th, 21st century idea of having especially feminist books begin or, or uh, something like The Astronaut's Wife was a big book, The So-and-So Something. So mm -hmm. I thought to do this, I said, the, custodian, the custodian's bitch, people would think it's we're talking about maybe a novel and some some custodian has a mistress or something. Yeah. But the bitch is used in, in the verb sense. So uh, that yeah. that was one of the reasons I, I chose that title to, to give it the, the sense of that, like the astronaut's wife and sort of be a, yeah. a lampoon of it. Yeah, and, and also like so, sometimes the possessive gets thrown out. Like for example, uh, you could just have the custodians plural bitch, right? So that phrase, like you, like you, you do constantly pl play with the phrase. And I think for titles like this, uh, it's very useful that you know text doesn't just stick with like one you know uh, appearance of, of the title, right? Like it's it's and also you know the fact that it's very episodic in nature. It, it allows you to to just play off uh, various things in various ways, right? That that's pretty important. Yeah. So I will say when when you first proposed doing this book and this show, and then Dan sent me the book, uh, I I thought that it would be about a person. The mm -hmm. custodian's bitch as a person. So Dan, yeah. you're you were successful uh, with with what you just said there in terms of uh, what my immediate guess was as to what the book would be about. But then, yeah, you learn pretty quickly it's it's going to be about uh, the verb sense. So uh, right away, reading that uh, the first few paragraphs that you did, Alex, of the prologue, um, one thing that stood out to me is, and this is obviously you know Dan um, working as as a great writer and doing what great writers do, but. It's, it's poetic. I mean, there's a few great lines or, or at least like lines that, that draw you in right off the bat. And you're thinking, if this is a custodian who's talking to me, what custodian do I know that, that would write like this or that would talk like this? And so, um, you know, phrases like palpable and mine or executor and executioner and, and these little bits that you get from the go, uh, get go, are, uh, are drawing you in and making you think like, so who exactly is this yeah. this person that's going to be speaking to me this is kind of odd because you expect some kind of like you know uh, a little bit more rough around the edges uh, type person to be the narrator so uh, that was my main thing from the the prologue and obviously like a couple direct philosophical posits that that are made that echo and reverberate through the rest of the novel yeah, very quickly afterwards, um, you know, I didn't get a chance because it's uh, it, it would go on too long. But uh, this these observations turn into, you know, uh, so Ben, the narrator, is is uh, walking through and he notices that he uh, uh, might have accidentally killed a, a cricket, right? Which becomes its own kind of like set of philosophical observations, which is also like a very like Dan thing, right? There's often in, in Dan's books, uh, dead or dying animals, the kinds of observations that uh, you would uh, have about that. And also, like, I, I'm not sure how, um, you know, uh, Dan feels about this person. I think it, it might have been mentioned in the book, but, you know, I've always liked the idea of writing about things that otherwise would just be completely, you know, passed over. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I'll, in some of my notes, maybe we'll get to as we continue to talk about um, the novel and moving through it, like, there are quite a bit of these moments where, um, you know, Ben's character is noticing or identifying with different kinds of animals. So you highlighted the cricket. We've got the, the bull toad, yeah, which reappears multiple times. We've got uh, like one of my poll quotes that I may read later. You know, he uh, notices coyotes howling in the distance and wonders what what's going on with them. So there's a lot of this uh, 
you know, extrapolation and moving beyond human relationships, which in this case aren't giving him much of anything anyway, uh, mm-hmm. and deciding to, uh, to engage with the rest of the cosmos. And it's, they, they frame up a lot of nice moments mm-hmm. in the book. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I have some things to say about the bull toad. Um, I'm not sure like Dan, do you want to jump in to, to mention anything yet or should we just like keep going through? Uh, the only thing I would say is this was a very easy book to write. I wrote it about six months after I started it actually six months after I left that job. Uh, and I had a whole pile of probably about 200 post-its that, you know, when I get home, I'd write down, you know, this, this custodian said this, or this happened. Or, and basically it was just, basically putting them into a month by month category. I mean, the book literally basically wrote itself. I mean, yeah, I have the observations, but uh, there's, if there's two or three actual little paragraphs that have uh, made up stuff, that that's probably a lot because it's, yeah. it's basically exactly what happened. Uh, I have it like on my phone, for example, as a text oh. document and I have like, you know, uh, they have like all these like reading apps and, oh. uh, you know, like if I'm walking or whatever, like I could just load up articles and just walk and just have them read to me. So I don't have to worry about, you know, reading something later. I'm um, so 20th century. <laughs> what? That's what I'm so 20th century. Yeah, well, well like, honestly, like, I can't, uh, I wouldn't be able to, like, I would not normally read, like, a Dan book like this. I wouldn't be able to, like, read many of the plays that way. But, um, you know, something I've read before, it's a bit easier. But, uh, uh, like, when somebody's reading it to you and they're giving you, like, the pauses that you yourself might not ordinarily do, like, you do get, like, a more kind of, you know, slanted, like, version of the text that you've envisioned some other way. And, uh, like, I, I remember, like, uh, actually walking, like, laughing out loud at things that I didn't notice before. Like, uh, I, I don't remember if it's, like, Fat Rat or Deb Puss, where, like, she comes up to the Ben character and she's like... Uh, uh, what does the I in CISD stand for? And you and you were like independent, and he was and, and, and she asked what it was, and you were like, uh, "Do you mean the the concept or the word or, or like some, or like something like that?" Um, and, and like the, the fact that somebody would have like such a you know such a question, but it's also very real because you know like you 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 meet people like this, right? Um, and it, it's something that you otherwise might sort of, because because the book is kind of very prosaic in the sense that you know this is a you know a, a guy working as a janitor. We're gonna have like a lot of attachment to like just basic you know just like you have the basic grunt work. A lot of the the writing is like very grunt like in the writing, right? So you don't you know you get lots of poetic mo- moments, but a lot of it is sort of uh, implicit and and the humor. Um, it, you know, might function in a similar way sometimes. Yeah, I would agree with that. And one of my comments as well about the, uh, the episodic nature of the writing is that it ingrains some of the feelings that Ben is talking about to you as the reader. And I know that probably by 30 pages in, there would be times where I'd be reading and, and like need to walk away because I was almost exhausted even just thinking about Mm-hmm. like the waves of days that that were breaking on Ben and mm-hmm. how uh, how rote the whole thing is and how futile it seems. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that was a smart choice because it just it wears on you yeah. as the reader and uh, and it even though there are these moments of humor and things that pick you up, there's also a lot of dragging you down and, and feeling uh, you know feeling this world um, that, mm-hmm. that you've entered into so that, I think it served a good purpose from that yeah. standpoint. 
And, you know, there's like very, like as an author, you would have various strategies to tackle something like that. So like, if you say like, Hey, I'm going to you know, do this book uh, that features th this grunt work, you know, am I going to just like poeticize and have these like long sort of, you know, if you imagine like John Cassavetes, like you could maybe see like a, you know, a, a long sort of shot uh, of somebody just working and working and working. You don't really have that much there. You have just enough to show what the work is, what it entails, um, and just, you know, the observations that kind of tee off of that, like it, another quote, uh, that, um, uh, I, that I, I remember when I first read it, then I read it again and I showed it to my wife when I was reading it next to her. Um, cause I mean, it's just so memorable, right? Um, uh, like just, just, just imagine. So this is like one of the episodes, like the, the, the book it's structured where you have every time you have a new, new, like section within a chapter, you get like five asterisks and sometimes they're incredibly short. So this is just like one of the sections. Um, a few days ago, a pallet fell on my foot and blackened one of my toenails. In a few days, it will fall off and take a good month or more to get a full nail back. This has happened before, right? Like you, you need, you need nothing else in terms of showing like you know he, he's talking about like all the kind of you know physical uh, decrepitude that comes with physical labor but uh here you know you, you like the the fact that you you know the narrator has immediately a sense of oh this is what it is this has happened to me several times before it might happen again i know what the process is most people by definition that would read this book uh, especially now like you know maybe in the future we'll have less and less physical labor around um, they probably will never be in a situation where uh, they get the experience of having a nail fall, fall off and, and growing back, right? This is, this is something that's very foreign and exotic to most people. Um, but in just, you know, a, a couple of sentences, you get, you know, so much of what was being discussed kind of like a little bit in the abstract. Um, you know, this is, this is a very kind of like you see this in, in sharp relief here. I mean, um, let me just say something uh, about number one. I when you said that, I remembered when I lifted it up, the the top board actually broke off because it wasn't mm -hmm. nailed in properly. But uh, uh, this is about form meeting function. The style that I use here, I've used in a few other books, uh, not as as pithy, pithily here, and I call it the the bridge style, which is Evan S. Connell did, Mister and Mrs. Bridge. And he uses those forms too. And those are his, by far his two best books, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, uh, where you'd get anywhere from maybe just a couple of sentences to sometimes a page and a half of these little episodes. Um, when I did True Life, which is a four volume memoir, uh, I had written about 860,000 words in the four books and I edited it down to 680,000 by removing excess words and punctuation and, and so forth. And I got that very rat-a-tat-tat Hemingway style. When I did, for example, a Norwegian in the family, there you have these long, you know, passages where you could have 15, 20 pages of someone just looking at uh, sneakers that are tied up around uh, uh, wires uh, and whatnot. That's the, my total immersion kind of thing. And I, I sort of go like an accordion, depending on the book, I, I, I change formats mm -hmm. when I'm doing plays. Uh, it, it all depends on what the format is. And here, when you're dealing with just basically, uh, what most people would not find any interest in uh you you don't want to overwhelm them but humor is also a very good lubricant to to get people into a, yeah. a, a work dan yeah. one one quick question for you too just in terms of any influences that might have been in mind when you're writing this uh were you thinking of vonnegut at all no the bridge books the the form just it was, the, it was the, form, the form and what i experienced 
I, I basically, it, it, if you could imagine me like playing a, a saxophone, it's me blowing through the bridge, the, my breath, my experience is going through the saxophone that is the, the bridge form. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so I, I can see that in, in terms of the format. I will say just from my reading of it, uh, I was feeling a little bit of Vonnegut influence just in terms of like this like mid-America workaday and even the names of some of the characters are, are like just so American and kind of harsh and, and almost nasty. It's like Deb Puss or Zeke. When you compare that to something like a, a Kilgore Trout, you know, from Vonnegut's novels, it, it had some of that same and, and some of the bleak... Um, you know, just, just offhand moments of humor that happen with uh, almost describing things so exactly as they are that uh, when you, when you're the reader, then you think about this and you're like, fuck yeah, like that, that is funny. I mean, that I've never thought about that once before in my life, but either I've had that experience or I know someone who has, and it is humorous. So I, I had a little bit of shades of Vonnegut uh, at times. I always think it's good to move uh, to use humor, especially when you do something political. Because without a, without a doubt, this is probably well. All, all my books have some element of, of politics. I mean, certainly a Norwegian in the family has some political elements. So did uh, the Vincetti brothers. But this is I, I wrote this not only just because I experienced it rather recently when I wrote it, but uh, I wanted to talk. Th- there's very little. If you look in American culture, working class people are shown to be either boobs or or idiots, uh, the Roseanne or the married with children kind of thing, uh, people to be made fun of, or they're shown as, you know, sort of pathetic uh, losers that if it wasn't some kind of independent film, someone's got a drug problem or this or that, and it's all bleak. But, you know... or, or be- heroes, right? On the other side, there, there's sometimes like, you know, if you have like a typical communist writer, they might turn, you know, like Deb Puss into some kind of hero, right? Which is also, that's also a pitfall, right? And it happens, you know, it happens in stories in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I, I just I just deal with these people and the character of Ben Christian, which is the, the doppelganger for me, uh, as, as it happened, as, as much as I can possibly do. Yeah. Um, one thing that I was wondering about since you, you, uh, since we already got on the topic of like episodic, uh, writing. So the structure in this book is we, we start with the prologue. Then we have, I forget how many chapters, but, uh, every month or so, I think, uh, yeah, there's, month, yeah, every month, yeah, yeah, like there, there's, you know, there's like a date and that's like a de facto chapter. Then within each chapter, you have these like smaller episodes and, um, just like just structurally speaking, like uh, for you know anybody out there that might uh, want to start doing some kind of uh, writing, oftentimes like it's it's easier to to be episodic. Like I remember with my very first novel, like I, I thought you know let me just do these kinds of episodes because it's it's easier when you're starting out. Um, but uh, I, I also you know like we we've seen tons of like pitfalls, right? Like uh, with episodic film, for example, um, you could have a, a situation where suddenly you have episode after episode after episode. Things don't really seem to go here. Things don't really come together. Uh, it's just you know uh, it, it just becomes kind of like a, a showing off, right? Like oh look at my episodes, and people could could you know sort of use that as a buzzword if they discuss my film or whatever. So like, do you have any uh, suggestions for people that 
might be interested in doing like an episodic book like this? Like, like what, what are, like, what are the ways to avoid, you know, some, some of the worst, like kind of like associations that we might make with episodic writing? Let it come naturally. Uh, there was a woman that, uh, I once I was involved with, but I tried to be involved with many years ago. I saw her do a video or something. She was, she's, what was it on? It was on some website or whatnot. She had posted something on Instagram or something. Uh, and I, I had stumbled over it. We're just Googling around. Every so often I'll Google people, find out who died, who's alive or whatnot. And I, I came upon her thing. And she's one of these people that has these posts all over her, her board, a whole timeline sketched out. You have to be organic in however you can create an art form. Uh, less than 1% of the time, maybe you need a highly structured Kubrickian Hitchcock way of approaching things. But especially when you're doing something episodic, just let things bubble up. Like, I mean, if you're, if you're cooking something, let things bubble up as they come. Don't, don't over, don't try to impose a narrative that this isn't going, this doesn't have to be a feminist take on, on, you know, uh, the, the power structure of Texas school districts or something. Let it just come as it, as it's going to come and surprise yourself. People too often when they create art, and I've said this many times, so I, I, I repeat myself, uh, enjoy the art. Most, mm -hmm. when, I, when I read or experience most things that pass or are presented as art, the thing I find is a, a, a typical kind of joylessness about it. Um, and uh, you, just have to, you just have to let it come as it comes. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I would just add, um, you know, a, a, a typical response to that would be like, well, you know, how do you know, you know, uh, whether something comes organically is, is good or not? Well, you won't ever truly know uh, in that sense, but the, the best way to, to, to get there, right, to put yourself in a position where maybe you do know is, you know, you, in the case of books, you would obviously have to just read as much as possible. You would have to see how other people uh, approach this and, uh, just choose, you know, the, the things that are kind of most stark, most effective. And, you know, your definitions don't have to be uh, the same as someone else's uh, definition. But, you know, you essentially have like an entire body of work to deal with, right? An entire, you know, uh, a a millennia of work. So, um, yeah, that, that's probably uh, the, the best way in that sense. This is, a, you know, this is a stand-in. Ben is a stand-in for you. Um but you know, when I'm reading the book, I don't. I obviously get so much of the Dan that I already know in my personal life. But there's also things in a book that are things that you probably wouldn't do or say in your real life. So, um, how would you go about like doing a book like this while making sure that hey, you know, whatever character that I put in. They can't be just, you know, um, uh, perfect in some way, right? They can't. They can't merely represent the idealization of what I believe in the world, what I want to see in the world, what I want other people to be like, uh, what I want my own example to serve for others. Like, how, how, um, like, how did you approach like imperfections and and characters in, in this book? Well, as far as the Ben Christian character. Any character that's a doppelganger of mine is somehow different. Manny Cole, who narrates the New York Quartet, uh, uh, is a more, a, a poor, what's the guy, Rupert Murdoch wannabe kind of reporter version of me with less scruples. Uh, 
the book I just recently finished and sent out to you guys levels that the main character there, whose name is Tom, uh, has more of a, I guess, white knight kind of effect. He, he ends up trying to save the world. Um, but uh, as far as the imperfections, they just, if it works, it works. Uh, you know, uh, whether it's with the Ben character, whether it's with the, the teachers or whether it's with uh, the management or the, the other custodians. Uh, like I said, it just, you, I, I, these things happened and it's just easy. It was, it was one of the easiest works I've ever done. It's like 88,000 words, but I mean, if, you know, it's just basically just structuring and putting them together and I, I remember them. So I, I have, my memory oftentimes is like a, an old zip file is that I can write a, a word down. Let's say if I said, uh, Deb Puss Caterpillar. I'll know what I'm talking about. Isn't it some incident where Deb Puss might have stepped on a caterpillar or something? Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll remember what I thought at the time and whatnot. And it all comes back to me and I just write it down. Yeah. Um, uh, what, what, one thing about that is uh, so, uh, like, it, it's, it's just an interesting kind of like disconnect in the sense that, so, like, as, as, as you know, someone is reading the book, they get the sense that, okay, so this narrator sounds. Uh, bitter and given the kind of you know kind of like laser-like focus on you know just uh, objective highly realistic judgments about himself about life about you know uh the position that he's in uh doesn't you know i i wouldn't say that makes a character sound uh, unlikable but it makes the character someone that most people for whatever reason don't necessarily want to know however um as uh, characters later on come up in the book and they make observations about the narrator you know they say things like you know uh i i see custodians working here all the time but um you know you're the only one that's not bitter or you're someone that i can actually talk to right or you know you have uh, uh at the end these uh, teachers give uh, the narrator um, like various gift cards or whatever when he's leaving the job. So, and, and I actually noticed that uh, that uh, is a similar disconnect between the kind of feelings that people might associate with you, Dan, like when they were just reading your essays versus if they were to like, I don't know, Skype with you or, uh, you know, physically meet you. Because I think people, you know, definitely get a sense like in these videos that, you're someone that laughs a lot. Like you, you take lots of pleasure, you know, in all sorts of like little things uh, in the world and in your surroundings. Um, and, and those themselves are, are qualities that are very uh, likable and that, you know, draw people to people, right? That's just an example of charisma, but that doesn't necessarily come out in the book until you get, you know, the, uh, the characters that come up as like, you know, the objective stand is like, they're able to offer a point of view that by definition, the narrator can't, can't offer. Um, and it just, it, it has a nice parallel, I think, to your actual like real um, life. Cause I've said this before, but I remember I was, I was being, I was pretty surprised by the difference between how you seemed when we first spoke uh, versus how it was just purely over email or text. Well, one of the things that uh, one of the reasons I do these interviews on my different plays and one with Peter Cleese uh, was also to uh, uh, show that, uh, you know, I'm just a, a regular person in, in the one sense because, uh, um, you know, Jessica always gets upset. She'll see some <coughs> some thread somewhere where these people are saying, well, what an asshole, or like the old Ebert the thread or whatnot. And, uh I was just looking at the EBIT thread. It's over 8,000 now. And uh, it was, there was some 
there were some people that in the early part were, would write write things like, "You need to have a heart with 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 your brain." What does this guy think? It's like, you know, th these people just projecting their own own things onto things that I've written or said simply because I say Tom Cruise is a bad actor or Spielberg is a bad filmmaker, um, and they take they take it personally. But in in regards to the book, I mean. You know, uh, the the character of Ben uh, is is a bit embittered. Uh, uh, he talks about having lost the job he had for a decade, uh, almost a decade, and then a, a temp job in between where he was screwed over. And then, but compared to the other people there, you know, he's he's very well adjusted. Uh, at least the other custodians and even some of the teachers. Um, and that's yeah. Uh, it, it, there's there's a realism there that a lot of people don't talk about and the people the people will just often i mean there's a number of th times when someone like the deb plus character who is this 60 year old short little woman from texas who'd be you know uh, you look too happy don't be happy and i say she walked away scratching her ass literally she'd yeah. come up and say don't yeah. be happy or something yeah. like that <laughs> yeah um uh, I, I know that you, Joe, you, you had some uh, notes where you were talking about like the likability of, of the character um, and how that might play into like, you know, this idea of we, we don't want perfect characters. Like what what flaws can we can we write in that are that are natural and make sense and cohere with the rest of the, the text? Yeah, so I can comment on that. And I also wrote in, in my notes about the unique nature of being taken through an environment like this by a character who has other redeeming um, arcs to their life. So in this case, you know, Ben, Dan is a, as a doppelganger for you, but he's a great artist on the side. And clearly um, at different points tells us very directly that he's bitter about his inability to make a living doing that, where he could spend even more time on it, improve at it more, push the, the art form forward and so on. Um, and, and like on the one hand, sometimes it at the beginning especially comes off as like a little bit preachy or, or makes the character a little bit less likable. But when you realize that uh, he's also just, in a lot of ways, the only character who's really getting on with it and still working this job, still thinking about the potential to, to move on to something else that could be better is, is important. And so, you know, he's existing in both worlds and like has kind of accepted that this is going to be what has to happen in terms of like where you're at right now, just economically and, um, and what, what must happen to stay alive basically, right. And sustain oneself. But that's another key point is that there's also, uh, you know, by telling the story this way and having the narrator and main character with these attributes, it's really unique because we don't have just another omniscient narrator telling us about a, as Alex said earlier, like some heroic working class citizens life and attempt to like save the school district. None of that happens. Uh, he doesn't get suicidal. He doesn't get totally depressed and down and just, you know, one day want to off himself or someone else. Um, he also doesn't have a, a magnificent triumph at any point, right there. It's just, things go on things things keep happening to him he responds takes it in forms and, and makes something you know good or great out of it with the artwork uh, that results but there's no like 
big, huge moment for Ben where all of a sudden, like he's won simply by being good. And, and that's one of your main philosophical posits in the book too. So um, the likability that I commented on in my notes also is just tied a bit to like, you know, Ben will just say what's on his mind or tell us what's on his mind. So he, you know, he's married, but he still has these attractions to various women. Um, he feels or knows that he could improve a lot of things that higher higher ups are in charge of right now and kind of tells us how it should be. Uh, if I were king for a day sort of thing, mm-hmm. which people I think find like inherently off-putting a lot of the time, even though we all think those thoughts to ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if we're being honest about that. So um, maybe not inherently likable, but certainly relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and, um, yeah. And also like, like I said earlier about that, like, uh, uh, even if we, you know, discuss this like question, like ability, there's just always a a difference between, you know, even as a reader, like you have to think there's a difference between how this narrator will, uh, present himself, like whether to other characters or in the text itself versus like what, you know, actually goes on, you know, uh, in, in the moments that don't make it into the art, right? There's plenty of moments that led up to, you know, Ben getting, you know, all the gifts at the end of the year from the teachers after he's leaving and nobody else did, right? We don't necessarily, we see some of those moments, but we don't see all of them, right? So mm-hmm. uh, there, there's, there's, you should always expect, like, even just without even making, like, personal assumptions about, you know, a, a writer's life, like, you would think that, you know, as you're reading a book, right, uh, the narrator's self-presentation, there's always that chance that um, uh, how that is in the book versus how the characters truly, let's say if you were ripped out of the book and you put all the moments that don't make it into the book, like that, that's going to be different, right? And that just opens up new avenues for for playing with those kinds of realities, right? That, um, you know, I, I get the feeling that most people don't really uh, think about that. Um, I, I I mentioned this Mike Lee movie uh, called Naked, and it was his first big hit. It won the Can, I think, uh, Golden Lion or Palm Door, maybe. Uh, and in it, there's the main character played by David Thewlis, an actor called Johnny. And Johnny is the typical kind of working class person that you would see in the kind of stuff you mentioned in a negative tone earlier. Uh, Johnny is a stylist. He, he he's able to quote from the Bible and other works of art here and there, but he's bullshitting. He doesn't know re- real, really anything about it. He's, he's a drunk. He's a drifter. He, he's a grifter. He, he, he go- goes from Manchester down to London to uh, the uh, sponge off an ex-girlfriend. Then he fucks the ex-girlfriend's uh, 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 roommate. Then he has a series of adventures where he's belittling people, fucking around with people. He ends up getting beaten up. He, he, he has a, a moment where he's lying on the floor uh, of the, the ex-girlfriend's apartment and he's just, and he's going crazy. And then he ends up stealing money and, and, and the film ends with him hobbling away from the house. And that's the kind of thing that I didn't want to do because it, it, there are people that, that when I looked on uh, uh, YouTube, for, I watched some videos about the movie afterwards, you know, they think Johnny is a hero and he's 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 a victim of society and whatnot. And that that's such bullshit because I've known I mean uh, the character of Ben as I, I write him is not like that. He's 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 a hard working guy who who does stuff. He's actually a, a great artist, unlike this Johnny who may have may have been, could have been maybe if he hadn't been such a, a dick. Uh, and 
that's a, that's a, a, a much more appealing. You don't have to have, first off, uh, a character that is likable. It has to be relatable. And Johnny isn't relatable. And that's one of the flaws. Like, Jessica was much higher on the movie than I was. I think it's a, a good to arguably very good movie, but it's nowhere near a great movie. It's nowhere near, say, even Mean Streets, where the De Niro character is an asshole, but a, a, a more specific type of asshole. Uh, whereas this Johnny is is well acted, but is a sort of generic asshole. And we've seen this type before. You're not going to like him. You can't really relate to him uh, and because most assholes aren't going to see a movie like this. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, Ben, on the other hand, is someone who... If you if you've ever worked uh, a blue collar job on a on a loading dock or at a at a warehouse or in a supermarket or or a custodial kind of thing, you know that's uh, you're going to meet these kinds of, of characters, and every so often you will find someone uh, in one of these blue collar jobs that's a bit above. But the the, the fact of the matter is, most of the teachers. Uh, I'll give you, I think at the end of the book, I talk about how I gave some of my plays to some of the teachers. I still, I never expected to hear from them. They never came back. And these are all English language teachers mm-hmm. that, that some of them said, oh, yes, Dan, uh, I, I'd like to read it. But I, I knew I knew I'd never hear from them again because there's not any real interest in the, mm-hmm. even these people who, who teach English. And I think I mentioned how some of the ridiculous ways of book reports, how book reports, kids nowadays write a paragraph draw a picture and and, and so, i mean anyway <laughs> it's yeah. just so dumbed down yeah um uh like uh, about about uh uh these kind of characters uh, in general one thing I'll, i i sort of mentioned this in, in the beginning is um so you know if you're doing this kind of book about blue collar work like it's very tempting to do something like Hey, um, I'm going to present these blue collar uh, janitors as like uh, uh, heroes, and the villains will be the teachers. The villains will be the administration. And I mean, there's definitely some villainy in terms of like, well, not the administration. I mean, they don't set like the pay right, but definitely this is like obviously this is a corrupt school district uh, in a kind of more generally kind of corrupt system, right? Uh, there's uh, uh, you know low pay. They they do things like try to take away um holidays uh they try to nickel and dime everybody in terms of like just getting them to pay for things that should already be provided for as like a common good especially if you're employed here for this like wider specific purpose like that should be taken care of um but uh every once in a while like the you know the the like you can't also just like make fun of them right like there are uh, occasional moments of insight I, i think it's uh Maybe it was Zeke or somebody else that that said this, and this this line comes up and again and again. How uh, the more educated someone is, uh, the further you know they get away from common sense, right? The less common sense they they have. Um, and uh, maybe like uh, we could like speak about like that that quote or that idea. Uh, the higher up you go in education, the less common sense you have. Like how, how does that play out in the real world? How does that play out in in the book, because uh, I'm sure we all have observations about this. Like we've all seen this play out, right? That's, that's why CEOs support Biden and Trump rather than the Green Party or other things, just to get it back yeah. to the political motive. Here is yeah. that they, you know. But anyway, let Joe take that. Well, yeah, I think we definitely we see that, and to a certain extent in the book too. It's important to note that, uh, similar to to what goes on with the the sketching and drawing out of the 
custodial characters, there are some some teachers and some other members of the administration with some redemptive qualities. Um, so once again, it, it is not an all or nothing. And, and that's important to remember. But, yeah. um, you know, definitely we, we do see, uh, you know, th this idea that um, it's kind of shocking how equally disengaged those sorts of people can be from uh, real, real rubrics for understanding and evaluating art, uh, real passion to, to know it and to teach it and to help another generation of, of, of people would be artists maybe, but at bare minimum, just humans understand it and, uh, and take in and create a more um, intensive filter for what they're mm -hmm. going to demand to see and to experience from art throughout their lifetime and perpetuate that, you know, on and keep advancing it. And as you said earlier, Alex, you know, make it additive on the overall arc of art to the next cycle. So, um, you know, I don't know that I can talk about like a ton of personal, very direct experience I've had in my life, but you definitely do see this. And we, I mean, we've all probably like either said it to each other or known of this, uh, in little, little bits and pieces. But when you see like huge awards for things that go to, you know, stuff mm -hmm. that you can just watch or read one time and be like, you know, who are the people evaluating this stuff? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, uh, there, there's nothing, there's nothing great here. There's nothing memorable that I was even, uh, I think after Jessica, Dan, not too long ago mentioned to me, uh, Louise Glick, who just won the Nobel for literature, you know, uh, with her poetry. And that just kind of put me on a real quick, um, like wormhole of Nobel winners from the past in literature. One out of every 10, you, you know, you know, this name still, right? Bob, uh, Bob Dylan, the literary genius. Yeah. I mean, right, right, right. Because they, they couldn't find anybody else. That's the thing. Like, it's like they're, yeah. they're not even pretending anymore. Literature is just so fucked up that they're like, all right, this year we're going to give it to Bob Dylan, right? Um, um, I was just saying, one point, um, uh, one of the things with the character, Ben, he does change. It isn't, it isn't just a static kind of thing. Because we know it, before the book starts, we, we hear Ben have talked about, about having lost a prior job because he was standing up for something uh, at the supermarket he worked. And there's one, there's one incident uh, where there's a young girl named Lauren who's being verbally abused by one of the teachers. As Ben is cleaning up, he's seeing her in the hallway being shouted out. And he later said, tells another teacher about it who offers that, well, you can go report it to that. And, and Ben says, no, I'm not. And uh, basically the girl ends up okay, he's one of these SPED students, special education students, and this is now in real life four years ago, and, uh, you know, she's probably okay now, but uh, there are little things that, that Ben or me would probably have done had he not been screwed over uh, in, in the way uh, he was by, by that school or in other things. Um, uh, in a very similar way, years ago, uh, a, a woman who had... Uh, uh, had been interested in me, had phoned me a lot. And anyway, I gave her some poems and then she went crazy and she, she, uh, uh, she uh, got a, uh, not a, what do you call it? Uh, not a warrant. Um, restraining order. Restraining order <laughs> on me. And I went to the judge. The judge thought it was ridiculous. This was 25 years ago. And, and yet then what happened was a couple of years later at my own poetry group, there was a guy who was actually harassing women but I found that out later. And when I 
and I, I never confronted him, even though a couple of women had told me about this, because I gave him the benefit of the doubt, because I didn't get the benefit of the doubt. So in the same way, this Lauren girl, let's say if there had been something more sinister happening, uh, uh, might not have, Ben might have got, looked the other way. And I can even go back years ago, too, where I sometimes go back, there was this serial killer pedophile that... Uh, I could have killed, and he, this, this is this is America for you in 2020. I could have killed. This is this is me, my Scorsese moment coming out, but I didn't. And I sometimes wonder if some of the little uh, bad boys at the supermarket back in New York, where this all happened, that might have disappeared afterwards. To what degree I bear some responsibility for that? But then again, he had a corrupt cop brother who, when he was going, he could have been put away on insanity for being insane. The the, the cop. The, the brother came with a, a thing from a shrink and he was let, let go. But these are these kinds of little things that, that tie up in, in, in my own mind. And as a writer, things have consequences. So, you know, fortunately, as far as I know, that Lauren girl didn't uh, suffer any ill uh, and uh, whatnot. But she, she could have because something else affects something else. The whole butterfly mm-hmm. effect garbage. Mm-hmm. One thing I'll, I'll say there is, um, so like, uh, you know, like, like back to these characters, um, you, you said that Ben doesn't, uh, that Ben does change. It's not static. Uh, another uh, observation I mean, just came to me is how, so there's plenty of times in the book, right, where, you know, Ben does not think much of like the teachers. He doesn't think much of, I don't, I don't want to say doesn't think much of the kids, like he's always like complaining about the work that the kids are asked to do and also just the work that they end up doing. Like if they're asked to be like, hey, like, can you uh, imagine what you want to be like, like when you grow up, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, and it's like all these like inane answers. Uh, you would think that Ben is just this misanthrope that's sort of getting worse and worse. But in fact, whenever you see him confronting something that is like objectively bad in terms of like, you know, ordinary human interaction, ordinary respect. Like if there's uh, a teacher that's making faces at a student, you know, uh, he would sit there and he would think like, wow, this is, you know, so fucked up and it's uh, in some way abusive. Um, But at the same time, like, you know, that he is someone that uh, on a kind of, I don't want to say deeper level, but in a more abstract level, doesn't really think much of, of of people right and it it sounds bad to say because again like it th- those th- that never really makes its way out personally right um uh you don't see this kind of like vind- vindictiveness come out you don't see this kind of hostility ever really come out uh and you you have like actual stands that are taken that are you know they're they're the things that people ought to do right when when faced in, uh, with these kinds of situations um and uh, yeah, I don't know how we got into this. We were talking about well, common sense, or yeah. And I was going to say one oh, other yeah, way yeah. in which the the common sense idea comes out because then we we took it down the the art trajectory with the teachers and what they do or don't know and and teach about art. But um, there's also a lot of moments highlighted of uh, you know their corruption or blaming things on the custodians that they should be responsible for. And um, not speaking out when, you know, the custodians don't have the equipment they need, for example, but we've got $3,000 plasma screen mm-hmm. TVs coming in so the football team can rewatch footage from their you know, shitty high school game in ultra HD 4K. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and just the misallocation of resources. Whereas if, you know, a teacher would understand the way that all these things are linking together, they would understand that the vested interest for more, more students and more, you know, fellow people in the district would be to be a lot more intelligent with the way that things are, um, are requested and, and acted upon. And so, and it's also, I mean, Dan, maybe you could comment on this, but like, if you're someone who knows American culture, you also understand that like, of course, this is what's happening in Texas. Like the football team is prioritized above any kind of actual learning because probably half the kids in that school district think they're going to be Tom Brady because, you know, it's like an American mystique kind of thing um, that we, we would rather try to have kids believe they could become a professional athlete than like a, I don't know, a, a good worker in another industry or a good artist or, or whatever. Um, so there's always appeals to like those kind of lower, lower down the food chain ideals uh, well, that then notices. It's not just Texas though. I mean, that I could have written a, a very similar book about my nine years working at the supermarket in New York. And they're the characters, like I mentioned, this pedophile serial killer even more over the top in a lot of ways than people would have thought I was really making things up. This this one, because it was only a year and a half, because it was in between two uh, supermarket jobs that I ended up with, with the temp job right before this and being screwed over in that, uh, it, it was just it was just the perfect... And the, like I said, the little moments, the episodes just came so, uh, so easily. It, it was just begging for me to do, whereas if I was to try to do this, for example... Uh, with my nine years, uh, eight years at the, the supermarket in New York, I, I couldn't write it in that particular way, even though there are a lot of characters like that. I've done a few plays with, uh, based on the New York supermarket I worked in years ago. Uh, and also, too, this was six months after I left there. If I wrote about the supermarket in New York, that's 30 years almost uh, of, of colorism. There, there comes a, a, a nostalgic feel that even I'm not Im- totally immune to. There's no nostalgia really here. I mean, there are, is some sen- sentiment. Uh, uh, ben does say he likes some of the uh, custodians. He, he likes some of the teachers, some of the cute females, others, uh, some of the males. Uh, but it, it doesn't have, it doesn't reek of any mawkishness or, or you know, when I was a young man i remember kind of the feel mm-hmm. uh, oh, just uh, one more observation uh before we move on um uh like it it it, it, it like going back to, to the ziki quote um you know the one way to think of this is the higher in education that you go let's assume that that's that has an association with like uh the level of your salary like the more that you have cushions around you, whether it's like pure money or people that are educated and have their own kind of like, you know, uh, larger social networks, um, that cushion just keeps you from developing, cultivating common sense and exercising common sense. Like I remember there's one uh, incident in the book where uh, Ben just like marvels at how like some teacher leaves out half open lemonade despite the fact that it says keep refrigerated after opening and you know the fact is like if 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 you're someone that does not value you know the whatever amount of dollars that that cost um you're not even going to be curious enough to look at it to see if it spoils right or whether it can spoil like you are uh, uh you know you are cushioned from reality and with education in general like it is true like the higher up that you go you get so 
cushioned from reality, right? And you, and you, and you get so put into the, into this bubble where, you know, people don't speak in the currency of common sense. People don't speak in the currency of even, you know, like a uh, 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 truth in many ways, right? They, they speak in the currency of like, like in, in that world, right? In a world that is just hyper-educated, uh, you have a world essentially of where, where like, like, uh, the currency is like these like sets of relations, you know what I mean? And because you have these excessive relations, um, you don't have to cultivate the, those other parts of you. Um, and you know, this, 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 it's interesting. Cause like, you know, a lot of uh, th these like uh, janners in the book, like they're not good people. They're not hard workers. They're not any of that uh, for the most part, but uh, they do have a quality that is uh, sort of different from everybody else. And you do get the sense, though, that if Ben gets into these positions of power, you know, the common sense would still be there and he wouldn't, you know, become like, you know, a stereotypical oppressor. Whereas like most of these like blue collar workers, uh, you know, if if you were to put them in charge of everything, like like Deb Deb Puss would just like you know she would go drunk with power, right? She would you know she would completely try to like use her position for you know even more like nefarious ends. Like now she's just sort of nickel and diming the school and all the little ways that she can. But you know you put somebody like that that's sort of motivated uh, to do these kinds of things into another position, you know, they're not, you know, it's, it's, it's like the Nietzsche slave morality, right? Like they, they, they're just lusting to be in that position as opposed to having a consistent critique of, you know, those, those power relations. Anyway, that's, um, a, that's kind I, of I just, wanna, I just want to read one section before we go. Uh, it's the beginning of the September 2016 section. And the thing with, with that, that teacher with the lemonade, by the way, is she was a really intelligent and nice woman. And the yeah. thing, she's also the teacher that, that I mentioned, she had her room trashed when she and her daughter went away for a month's trip to England or the, or Europe, and she didn't find out about. And the, the, I remember the assistant principal there told me, you know, oh, we will we'll inform her about. It. There was so, just such a lack of communication as in anything uh, there. But the thing is, she these teachers kept letting these kids walk in and out of these I remember kids walking out with boxes of who the hell knows what they were they were stealing books or or, or uh, typewriter ribbons or who the hell else knows and then then the, the the management would be like well why are we missing this or that well you I, I, I even in the book talk about writing down things that happened uh, saw saw a kid in this room without supervision and I, I have these lists uh, along with the posts of of incidents I use, I'd have these lists, you know, uh, 27 incidents uh, that, that should have been. Yeah. But anyway, uh, let me just read this one section. It's, it's, it's just emblemic of, it's, it's an interesting incident, but it's also the way I write about it that, that, that's good. So Deb Puss is scratching her, her bony old ass again as she sees me finishing sweeping up one of the rooms. She says, Bam, you're really trying to make the rest of us look bad, huh? Take it the fuck easy, Ben. I just like to get going. The quicker I start, the quicker I'm done. Fuck, I guess so, she says. But you know that those fat fucks sit there in the cafeteria after they punch in till at least 4.30. I shrug my shoulders. Except for Zeke, that fat bastard is there till 4.45 at least. I yeah, do not bother to ask Deb how the hell she would know all of this without herself often sitting there with the fats. <laughs> so yeah. you, you, get, you get a sense of, of, of Ben's being more intelligent than her. But you also get a, a sense of how easily these people betray themselves and how, in a, in a large sense, they're very much alike. They're, they're, they're all lazy. She's complaining about, about them sitting there brazenly. 
but how would she know if she was not there doing the exact same thing? Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention that that bull toad. I mean, it's a minor occurrence, right? You had this uh, bull toad that's given a few different poetic moments um, in the text. And uh, Jello said this is like, you know, this like uh, um, a creature that seems to be like the most enduring colleague uh, of, uh, of Ben's, right? He's, he's sort of always there. He's consistent. He's more or less uh, doing the same thing again and again. Uh, but, you know, I, I think the difference uh, there is, you know, like in terms of comparing to the other characters, like there, there is something... There is something about like that toad's appearance where, you know, in a state of nature where um, I don't want to say, you know, the, the cosmos or like a state of nature is fair because it's not obviously right. That's also not a, not a meritocracy. Uh, but in that kind of state, state of nature where you haven't yet had, you know, so many other corrupting influences that might make it into society and so many like new power relations. Like in the book, like you get a constant sense that the janitors and everybody else, like there is like a caste system, right? They do very much feel like untouchables. There is always a sense that, you know, Ben is lusting after these teachers, but it's almost like he's kind of, you know, he's like in a cage, right? And everything else is out there that, you know, well, you can't have this. And why is that? Why can't you? It's because we're in a different class, um, you know, th this book very much has, has a, a, a stronger feeling of class distinctions than I think like any kind of contemporary book that I remember reading. Like you see all the time, like the, the different ways that not only character characters get treated, but the different ways that they feel, the kind of fears that they feel around like people of like so-called authority, even if it's meaningless. But to get back to the toad, um, you know, in a state of nature, like this, this toad seems to like have roughly speaking, some kind of merit. Like Ben walks by him, uh, even if he walks by too quickly, the toad doesn't doesn't escape, right? He's kind of, you know, he's very content to be where he is. Uh, he's, uh, he's not afraid of the world in that sense. And then one time you see him with like with two, I don't know if there's a special word for female toads, but he sees two toads, right? So, you know, maybe he's like um, having sex with both of them. And, you know, you just get the sense that, you know, in, in a pure kind of system where, you don't have uh, these other intrusions, you know, maybe Ben would essentially be like, you know, the toad, maybe, maybe Ben would be the one that would be this uh, uh, polygamist, right? Maybe Ben would be the one that would have, you know, th like things essentially uh, given to him, right? Um, uh, it, 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 bitches, I call it that, the bull yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, like, you know, in, 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 you know, the closest thing to, I guess, this kind of like state of nature where I guess like chiefs or whatever, like uh, they're, they're sort of exacerbating existing like power relations in the, the human mind. But, you know, uh, uh, you, you could imagine like, you know, like in, in a world of like justice, you know, you probably see more things like the toad, right? Give, being given essentially his due, um, as opposed to Ben, who, you know, he, he, he's the most meritorious person in that building, but, uh, in some ways he's getting the least. Cause you know, even if he's not necessarily the least paid or has the most health problems, like he does have to physically do more work because the more good work that you do, it, it is true. Like people want you to do more of it. Right. And they want those other people to do less. Like I, I, I've been there. Right. And you know, everybody that's been in a job knows that. The best, um, the best evidence of the, the caste system that you talked about, though, is that Ben is said to be 52 in the year and a half, or 50, and then 53, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, 51, 52. And then, yet, most of the teachers are younger than him. Most of the custodians are older than him. 
yet the custodians are referred to by their first names, mm-hmm. Ben or Deb or whatnot, whereas the, the teachers who are younger are called Mr. or Mrs. or Miss something or other. So yeah. there is that thing where it's the reverse. I was, when I grew up, and most people even today are told that you give respect to the older, it should have been Mr. Christian, which was mm-hmm. Ben's last name. Uh, but because of the, the politics and, and, the, and the whole way that that system is structured, the younger teachers are, are elevated to the point where they get the honorific of Mr., Miss, or Mrs. Yeah, exactly. Like e- even more with things like names, like you just get the sense that whenever the custodians are with one another, like there's always like a barrier. Like I, I felt like a, like some level of low grade anxiety whenever Ben would like come across somebody that was in another gender because again, it very much felt like you are crossing a caste system. What kind of like fucked up thing is the teacher about to say now in this interaction? Or is she going to give him a strange look? Or, you know, is she, um, you know, like, 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 like there, there's always this kind of invisible, you know, low grade anxiety barrier that's there. Right. And, and, you know, I, I, I don't remember reading many books recently that, that it, it gave that, that sense. And it just reminded me of, you know, all, all the things we've been talking about politically over the last few years, how, I mean, there are caste systems, uh, this is so invisible, and nobody wants to talk about class, right? Like, it's so much easier to talk about things like race, because, uh, you know, it's very easy for corporations to, you know, virtue signal about race, it's very easy for them to pretend like they're doing something about race, while not, you know, uh, addressing class, right? That, that That's the thing that's most uh, damaging to uh, power structures, right? It's it's to have like a class analysis of of where the world is. Uh, I mean, maybe Joe, you could co- comment on that. Like, did you like did you get the same feeling like as you read it that as the custodians would interact with other characters, like maybe you would start cringing a little bit, like oh god, like someone's going to give like a condescending look. They're going to say some condescending thing, and you know, I just don't want to see that again, right? Yeah, definitely. There, you're on edge. Uh, the more that you get to know some of the teaching staff uh, after yeah. they each get introduced, uh, y- you are. You're more and more on edge as time goes by that there's just going to be some really cringy moment that happens, and uh, and a few of them do. And so um, on Ben's behalf, yeah, you're, you know, you're frustrated and, um, and concerned, you know, about his treatment and, and what might befall him uh, as he goes about. So, yeah, I, I do – I do remember that. And I, I don't know, there, there's also, if we're talking about like that low grade anxiety uh, kind of feeling, um, there's also a sense that you get that from Ben, even though he's in the same cast or class as the other custodians, that at some point he may eventually break and lash out toward them uh-huh. uh, just because his intelligence level and his, his existence is, um, you know, is more worthwhile than theirs in, from the standpoint of like what, what he's, done and aiming to do with himself, but that never happens. And so it, it is one of those, like, it's a redeeming quality where, um, you know, he'll be frustrated. He'll tell us as the the reader, some of his internal dialogue that's going on and, and what, you know, maybe what he really thinks about these people and what might befall them or should befall them in a just um, society, the just outcome. But he, he still at the end of the day gives respect to everybody um, and, and like attempts to see what could be good about them and, and never reaches some kind of breaking point of condescension toward other people um, himself in, in that group, right? Uh, in the custodial group. He's, 
I think we I think we should move on to just talk about the the politics. The one thing though with with that there's a, a brief little incident that really happened, and Ben talks about his Dion Warwick moment. Just walk on by the walk on by when uh, 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 one of the gym teachers, Mr. Carter, is, he is in the room. It's dark, and he is, <laughs> and it sounds like he's masturbating. Mm-hmm. And Ben sees through the slit that the guy is actually like pounding his head and, and like doing harm to himself. And he, he, he just, he's walking. It's like, I'm not, I'm not even going to investigate this. You know, yeah. keep walking. I don't want to know. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> one last thing before we get off the book. Um, so uh, like uh, the the climax in the book correct me if i'm wrong i was trying to reread this again to see if i missed anything but ju- you know ju- just like there is no actual explosion from ben like fuck you guys you know i'm actually you know so much greater than you are i don't deserve this you you never get anything like that you never get any characters truly changing their their lives like despite you know so many of them saying like i'm going to do this with my life i'm going to do that i'm going to you know move on to some new job. Uh, I mean, Ben moves on, right? Most, most of the characters don't. Uh, but in terms of like climaxes, uh, I think the closest thing to a climax is when I think it's Zeke, the one that gets fired. Um, and you, you just get, you know, like here was this guy who was this presence in the book and suddenly he's just kind of gone, right? And and the book just structurally, you know, it's a bit different uh, without him. Uh, the things that happen are a bit different without him, but more or less things go on. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the climax is almost an anticlimactic in, in that sense, but it, it has like a very nice parallel with, with how, you know, the, the book flows and what the book is and what the book is actually about. Yeah, he actually got transferred. They they didn't fire him because there was a hiring freeze because they couldn't get enough people. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> well, but, but but there were some other people that got in trouble, and uh, I think someone was being offered. Uh, someone was offered like you could either get fired or get transferred. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. so um, yeah, like like like. Do you agree that that was the climax, or like what what would you say is the climax in a book? And how? I, 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 I don't think there is any climax because the very picaresque nature of the novel. Uh, uh, episodic stuff. There, there really isn't uh, a client. It, it, it's just little beats, and this is what happened. Uh, to have made it to try to structure it in any way that there's some climax or that there was some great moral, you know, thou shalt not, whatever, would be antithetical to the very nature of what happened and how I wanted to write the book. Yeah. Um, uh, but do you think that uh, uh, in all books, even in this book, there needs to be, if you don't want to call it climax, like, is is there something that you would call uh, a fulcrum of some sort, a turning point of some oh, sort? It need to be. Most do have, and this is one, uh, just artistically, this is one of the problems with most art is that there's still the idea of a three-act structure in plays. There's still mm-hmm. Chekhov's gun, that if a gun appears in act one, it has to go off by act three, that the hero has to do this. This 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 gets to the whole Joseph Campbell thing, which is really irrelevant, but... Uh, uh, Joseph Campbell, this idea that that there's the hero's journey and, and to get back to Vonnegut. Vonnegut had the best skewering ever of Joseph Campbell. He said, oh, that's the guy who spent a lifetime figuring out that the hero gets into trouble and out of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, as, as, that, as art, you know, continues to grow, like one of the most important things to realize is, A, number one, there is such a thing, if not 
if you don't want to use the word rules, fine. But at the very le- least, there are cues in art, right? There are uh, directions and trajectories. Uh, there are side roads if you're an artist that you know focuses on being one of those like outlier types. That's fine too. Um, but beyond the rules and the cues, uh, you also get a slow like dismantling of the of the rules right like you know just like with any other phenomenon you know something like religion it's not so much that you need to you know eliminate values and value systems you just want to strip value systems until you remove everything that's unnecessary right you know religion is a value system it's better than many value systems but it has costs such as like it it, it provides a cost to freedom it has costs to um you know like 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 uh, uh, forcing you to believe things that just objectively are not true. Um, but, you know, when you get down to it, uh, you know, you still, you're like, you, you're, all you're doing is you're stripping down, you know, when, when you, like, get a new value system that's not religious, that's just purely secular, you're just stripping down the stuff that's unnecessary. So same thing with art, right? We're going to get more and more of this. Like, we we need to keep the fact that there are cues that that must be in some in some way respected, uh, but we're going to keep dismantling the rules until all that you're left with is the cues, right? And, and no, you know, like no, no inertia, right? A lot of these rules exist simply because they're, 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 they're like this kind of like inert mass, right? That it's there. It has the, the, the founders and the first mover advantage, but uh, there's no logical requirement uh, uh, for the arts, right? For their continued existence. And on that note, on to Trump. Okay, um, so that that's going to be that's going to be the artifact episode. So we're going to end here, um, and uh, we will get to twenty twenty. Uh, um, hindsight is twenty twenty.